Network, a podcast designed for women working in financial services and financial technology. I'm Cheryl Brown, Chief Engagement Officer at Females and Finance. I'm also an international speaker on social and digital marketing, too. On The F Word, you'll meet leaders in the community, as well as learn more about recruiting, training, advancing, and retaining quality female talent. Let's take a listen to today's episode. This is Season 1, Episode 9, and today we're going to be speaking with Jerry Detweiler. Jerry is passionate about helping consumers and small business owners solve financial problems through education and advocacy. She has authored several books on personal finance, as well as being a sought-after speaker on credit and financial topics, not only for industry use, but consumer-facing events as well. For the past three years, Jerry has been the Education Director for NAV, Inc., where she works with entrepreneurs and small business advisors to help them understand their personal and business credit, all while creating stable financial organizations. She's also a board member for Heroes at Home, as well as an article contributor at allbusiness.com. I have been really looking forward to talking with you today, Jerry, so welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Cheryl. So glad to be here. Wonderful. So we met on LinkedIn because I saw your profile pop up. We had more than a hundred connections and I thought, well, who is this Jerry person? I felt like I was had FOMO bad. I was a fear of missing out. Like I've got to know her. So I reached out to connect with you, scheduled the call. And here we are a few short months later and talking today. So I'm really grateful you're here. Oh, and I'm so glad you reached out. You're a super networker, so thank you. <laughs> uh, I try. I know a few people. I always tell people. So the first thing I want to start off with today is why work in credit and debt? Because I have been personally looking forward to our chat because I feel like debt is this dirty little secret that we all harbor somewhere, good and bad, about where we stand on our credit, how much debt we carry, um, how much debt we hide because I know that that's another one that I see out there. So why work in this area of financial services versus anything else? It was completely by accident, I have to confess. So I, <laughs> in college, I ended up in D.C. on an internship program, loved it, moved out there as soon as I could after college, got a job with a mortgage firm, didn't know a thing about mortgages. I didn't know what a point was, and I'm taking people's mortgage loan applications. That was crazy. And ended up getting fired there. Uh, my the owner of that company ended up in some legal trouble, so I feel very justified in my concerns about where I was working, but I fell into a job with a consumer advocacy group, and it literally was one of those fell into a job situations, and it turned out to become my career, so fate, accident, I don't know, I ended up in this field, but it, it, the, the, the fun thing about it is that there's always something to learn, something to talk about, something to work on. The interesting thing about it, I've been doing this for a long time, and I hear the same scenarios, same questions over and over again. So while I may feel like, hey, I've said that a million times, for the individual who's dealing with this, it's brand new and it's personal, and that makes it interesting and exciting for me. You know, I love the fact that you said you fell into this by accident because I'm very transparent. I uh, grew up in St. Louis and I moved to San Francisco when I was about 19 and I had a thousand dollars. I thought it was so rich. <laughs> it's like a buck in San Francisco, you know, conversion, right? In the ratio. And I was like, Ooh, I need to get a job. So I went down to the local Kinko's in Berkeley, California, and I created this resume and I faxed it off. It says I faxed my resume to the wrong number. This is true. Mass Mutual 
called me and said, and this is back, back in the day, it was Massachusetts Mutual, the blue chip company. I mean, that really dates me. And they're like, we think you're looking for something else. Would you like to come in? And I'm like, yeah, 100% lied. I have no idea why they hired me because they were like, do you know about insurance? I'm like, sure I do. I'm like, I knew my dad paid my car insurance. I was 19, 20 years old. I had no idea. And uh, they took a chance on me. And so I've always kind of, I got like a big special space in my heart all the time for them. When people mentioned mass mutual, I'm like, hey, 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 they took a chance on a little girl from St. Louis and gave me a job. And here I am 30 years later, still working in financial services. So I love those who fall into it by accident. So good things come from that. And you stick around because it's meaningful, right? I mean, people have asked me that. Have they asked you that as well? Like, yeah, absolutely. And someone recently asked me what motivates you, you know, when it comes to work. And I said, helping people when I feel like I've helped them and I've been honest and transparent and reliable with them. That feels really good. So it does. It does. I, I have a very good friend. His name is Ian Freeman. And Ian uh, said that he, when people come to you in their hour of need and say, am I going to be okay? It's our job in financial services to have an answer to that question. And I thought that is so important that just really empower, just impacted me so much. And so I think about that almost every day when I'm working that, you know, is someone going to be okay if they reach out and they find this person? So I think that that's beautiful what you just shared there. So you have been featured in some books. I know you've written some and been a part of some projects. So how many books have you written been a part of? Because it was an impressive list when I was going through uh, your website and I didn't get to go over um, the depth of each of them before our talking today, but I got a gist of a few of them. So I thought maybe you could share about those. Sure. My first book was The Ultimate Credit Handbook. And at the time it was written, it was the very first book that talked about, mass market book that talked about FICO scores. So this was back in the day too. You and I have been around this area for a while, Cheryl. And uh, it was uh, very well received and, and it really helped launch my career, I think, in terms of going broader even than, than what I had been doing. And then since then, I've co-authored uh, five other books. I love co-authoring because one thing I find with myself is that I will fiddle to death if I don't have a deadline and have a partner. So I'll keep wanting to change it. And even now when my books, I'm thinking, oh, I want to change that. I want to change it. <laughs> but my latest book, uh, I have two books that are really available right now. One is a free ebook. It's on Amazon called Debt Collection Answers. And that's for anyone who's dealing with debt collection issues. Very passionate about helping people understand their rights so they don't get abused because it happens all the time. Second one is Finance Your Own Business. That's my most recent book. I wrote it with small business attorney and rich dad advisor, Garrett Sutton. Great guy. He had a lot of clients who were ending up in some precarious and, and even some scam situations around business credit. And at this time, there wasn't really a, a mass market type book about business credit. So we wrote it. And in the course of writing that book, I interviewed the CEO of a company, uh, Nav, and long story short, I'm working there now full time. So it's funny how these things work out. They all come full circle, but it's also been for me, I love the fact that I can take what I learned about consumer credit and apply it to, to small business owners too, because business owners ultimately are consumers, but there's a lot less protection when it comes to business and business credit. And so I want to make sure that they don't end up in costly, expensive mistakes that could actually cost them their business. And I know that being a business owner, <laughs> trust me when I say, um, I want to dig into debt because I think it's an area that it, frankly, it just really scares people. And especially women I have found, I think I, I worry about being the old bag lady somewhere, right? I mean, people read that and they think, and I think even guys probably look at it and go, did women really think about that? Yeah, I'm a single woman. I feel financial security in my soul. You know, I, I worry about, I'm almost 50. You know, 
when am I going to be in 20 years when I'm, you know, retired and hopefully. And so it is a, a real concern. Market Watch had a report this past summer in June of 2018 that talked about how different men and women are with credit card usage, because I think credit cards are very, um, can be a very em empowering, which I'm not a big believer of that word, but because I think we all have power anyway, but I think credit cards empower us to be able to make purchases that we necessarily wouldn't be able to. So I think they have good, but I think there's a lot of evil that can also be tied to credit card as well if you don't understand how they work. And so women, they were found, would, would not buy big ticket items with credit. They wanted to pay cash. And then men wanted to just use the credit cards. They were just slapping down and saying, put, you know, put it on the credit. What do you think are some of the reasons behind this and maybe some of the psychology of the debt itself? Because I'm of the same mindset that if there's a, if there's a big ticket, when I say a big ticket, I mean, for the average consumer, if you go in to buy a bedroom set with a mattress, you're really going to spend three to $4,000 for that purchase to happen. And I'm of the mindset in about three months, I probably could put that money away or four months if I just really whittled down and saved. And the guys are like, Six months, save as, you know, same as cash, and the credit card goes up there. So I'm curious what you think about you know, psychology and debt and men and women, especially credit card debt. Well, I think, first of all, we do have to face the reality that overall, financially, women do earn less, we do live longer, we do have less savings for retirement. So the, the fear is real. It's not something we're just imagining. It doesn't mean we can't prepare or find ways to address it, but it's real. Uh, one of the most impactful books in my career was a book written by a bankruptcy attorney and she had studied bankruptcy filings and she ran all kinds of data to try to understand the threads that come through bankruptcy. And many people have a picture that bankruptcy is, you know, too many flat screen TVs and expensive iPhones and people are careless, right? Yeah. And that's not what her research found. Her research found that the number one predictor that a woman will go through bankruptcy is if she has children, mm. number one. Now it just so happens, in fact, her data was so surprising to her that she threw it out and ran it all again. And this was at Harvard. And it turns out that uh, attorney happens to be Elizabeth Warren, who's now a US Senator. Mm. Yep. So, but it, her book really impacted my thinking because she's, what, she, what she uncovered is that Maybe five decades ago, you'd have a married couple, one worked, one didn't, and then the major expenses could typically be covered on one income. Mm -hmm. And then if there was a problem, then maybe the spouse who wasn't working would go get a part-time job or do something to fill in, right? Now we're very much locked into, in many families, either a single earner who's a single parent or dual earners who both have jobs and both rely on them. So all that is to say that you know, being conservative about debt is very important, but at the same time, we have to recognize that our major expenses, healthcare, uh, college educations, and even to some extent, um, primary education, and depending on where you live, and daycare, have risen so, so significantly that it means we have to be very, very vigilant about our finances, and debt becomes much more easy. So part of the reason we saw 
the um, part of the reason we saw the housing boom and bust in 2008 wasn't just that people were being irresponsible. In some cases, people were. But very often, they saw, this is my chance. This is my only mm -hmm. chance to get into a house, even if it is risky, even if it means no money down, even if that payment's going to go up later. This is my only chance to get in on the American dream. And so they did in large, large numbers, and then many people couldn't sustain that. So when I look at debt, female versus male, uh, it is interesting. When I go to do speak or I maybe do a media interview or something else, I would say that women are more readily coming up to me in a more public way to ask questions. Men seem to be more pull me aside, catch mm -hmm. me when no one's around so we can talk about this. And I would also say the same with my website where I'll get questions from both genders, but I feel like women reach out earlier and sooner, which in my, my view is a great thing. The sooner you reach out, the more options you have. I wish I'd known you sooner. I, a couple of things that you said. One was that when I was six years old, my mother prematurely passed away at age 39 from lung cancer. And we were already a dual income family in St. Louis. I was, it was like 1977. And I watched my dad work three jobs. Oftentimes I was left, and, and, and of no fault to his, he was doing the best that he could with what he had, right? And it's me and my sister. And, and, we had already accumulated debt at the level of a dual income family that and you know what I'm talking about. Right. And so we had to learn how to pare down and live off of one income. So it became increasingly, I was always increasingly aware of the cost of things that things were expensive. And so because of that, I was the money mindset that built in my head was of however things expensive. And so I was always trying to buy things down, you know, and trying to bring them down. So when you talk about that, boy, that hit home and in heart and mind for me, because, um, you know, my dad, it was just really, really tough on him. And I think it, it set off a precedence in our family where I was more of a, let's not buy anything. And then, you know, my sibling, a little different, you know, uh, it, using credit and stuff. And so it's funny how those kinds of things to talk about build up and follow us as we get older. And that also kind of talks about, goes into the line of budgeting. So I have, I have, I've often referred to budgeting as the dieting of finances. It just doesn't sound or feel good, right? It should, because I know dieting, you know, having a diet that you eat is good for you and having... A, a way to spend your money is good for you, but it just sounds like something we don't want to do. Like we hear it, we go, Woo, not for me. So um, I'm really curious. I think that as a parent, uh, my son, my oldest is almost 30 years old. And so I feel like those are conversations you start having it very little to teach them about the value of a dollar or value of pennies or how to save or how do you break it up to create fiscally responsible adults and giving them five bucks, teaching them how to save for a toy, for example. One of the most proud moments I had earlier this year was my son, who I was a single mom. I, I, I had a child, uh, you know, right out of high school and I was alone. And so things were, again, going back to my mind, money mindset of things were expensive and we didn't want to spend money on things that were unnecessary. Justin grew up with this idea that, you know, I need to know where my money is. And so he was, he's been very, very careful. And so I watched him not over-purchase on a home, which me and my ex-husband did because we were trying to keep up with the Joneses in 2008 
bought a house way outside of our means, ultimately sold it, took a loss that was astronomical that we almost never recovered from to be perfectly transparent. Whereas my son, I watched, you know, buy his first home at this very little amount, you know, and now his second home. He's, but he's now married and has a couple kids and now he's just bought into another house. So he's increased it and he's a single earner in his family. His wife does not work. He has three kids. I am so proud. And I go back to the moments where I was like, Justin, this is $5 and I'd give him five $1 bills. Let's talk about where that money's going to go because I didn't want him to have that same kind of mindset of not being able to understand what to do with the money, right? So I was just curious what your thoughts are about budgeting and some of the education and advocacy around that. Because I think there's just, in general spirit, I just don't think there's enough still, even in 2018 going into 19. Yeah, I, I do agree. There's not enough financial education. There's a lot of efforts in that regard. And for those in financial services, if you want to get involved, Junior Achievement does a lot of education work. I've been a volunteer for them. Jumpstart, the Jumpstart Coalition for Personal Financial Literacy, that's a lot of financial services organizations that are getting involved in those efforts to bring financial education to schools. So do what we can, right? But a couple of things I'll point out. First of all, I'm a parent of only one, and I, I firmly see looking at my friends and other family, you know, every kid's different. So you can't, we're not all going to create little robots that are going to do exactly what we tell them to do, right? So, so I, I don't fault the parent who has tried and it's just not working if they're doing their best. But I do think starting early is really important. And one of my favorite resources that I use with my daughter, and she's also very, very frugal, uh, is uh, Sammy Rabbit. So there's a workbook and CDs. Uh, Sam Rennick created this and it's called Sammy Rabbit and their songs all about saving and being smart about your money and being careful about your money. And I would put that CD in with the kids and she and her friends still remember, they can still remember some of these songs, you know, saving is the habit uh, is his, is his motto. So I would start with something like that and then look at what resonates with your kids. So it might be a, a piggy bank. You can, the allowance debate is a huge one. Do you pay for chores? Do you not pay for chores? And I'm not going to say this is right for your child, but I would say that exploring the options and looking into something to start them off young is a smart idea. But the biggest thing you can do, and this is what it sounds like you did, Cheryl, is you talked about it. That's the number one thing that many parents simply do not talk about money with their kids. And I remember when my daughter was five, went to the bank and I said, oh, we're going to open a bank account, put some money in there. She burst into tears. She said, someone's going to rob the bank and steal my money. She felt like it was safer in her piggy bank under her bed, you know, than in a, than in a bank. So having these conversations early and really listening yeah. to our kids, not just lecturing, but listening to them is crucially important. I agree with that so much. I, um, I, I tell this story because it's probably the, the number one thing that my dad ever did for me as far as like paying bills on time. So I had to buy a car and I had almost all of the money. Um, I needed to have $1,800. I had 1200 so I need to borrow $600 from my dad. My dad said, I will give you $600. You're going to pay me $100 a month. It's due on this day, and, uh, and I want it in cash. And I said, okay. So I had a payment due to my dad on a Thursday. I got paid Friday, right? So on Thursday, you know, the payment comes due. And I passed by in the kitchen. I said, hey, I get paid tomorrow. I'll, you know, right, I'll bring you the cash tomorrow when I get my paycheck. I get up in the morning. The car is gone. 
And I literally start freaking out. Oh my gosh, someone stole my car. I'm crying. I'm like, do we file a police report? My father, very, very calmly sitting at the table, reading the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, hasn't said a word. He's letting me go through all the emotions of losing your car. And then he puts the paper down and he said, when was your car payment due? And I said, well, yesterday, but I told you, I'm like, did you take my car? He goes, I repossessed your car until I have $100 in my hand. You don't get a car. And he legit had moved it off site. It wasn't like I was going to go find a spare pair of keys and take this car. And I had to figure out how I was going to get to work. So I got there on time, how I was going to get home, how I was going to get to the bank, all the things you do with a car, right? So when I got back from work on Friday, it was too late to go to the bank. Saturday morning, banks were not open when I was 17 on Saturday mornings. So I went Friday, Saturday, Sunday, no car. Monday, have to go to school, get off. I am like frantic. Everybody at school, like, I don't care where you're at. I need a ride to the bank. So I did and I got him and I gave him the money and he told me, you could have paid me the Friday before when you got paid and you made the choice to make me wait for my money. I've already given you the money. So it was such an incredible lesson, right? And so I'm like, (laughs) I'm so crazy about what does that do? (laughs) I love that example. That is one of the best stories I've heard. But it's it's one of those things where you're Mm -hmm. like, so as an adult, here I am at almost 48 years old and I'm like, pay your bills. I'm telling my kids all the time, pay your bills, pay your bills. So I love the idea of what you just shared there about the budgeting. And that also kind of leads into like student loans, right? Talking about paying things, large bills, paying them on time. Women carry the overwhelming majority of student loan debt today. And if you're a woman of color, it's even more for them. And this is where women borrowing more money for education than men do, which I found is fascinating. Going back to the credit card example, right? Where we're like, ooh, we're not going to use a credit card to buy a, you know, a bedroom set. But yet, student loans were the first one to ante up and say, I want some student loan debt, you know? And men are like, mm, let me rethink that a little bit. So I think that that's an interesting contrast. But you mentioned women, we do earn less. And you know what? And that's just an over, I mean, it's, it's a general fact. And before I get emails from listeners that say, oh, you're wrong. And it's, it's relative. No, it's not relative. It's factual. We make less money overall than men over the course of our lifetime too. So it's not just, even if they bring it up to date, let's say 2019, we start the slate and my buck is your buck. It still doesn't make up for the working years that I had where I didn't make the same amount of money. So overall, we will, I will have died making less money than the average man. It's just a fact. So I think, you know, um, I assume it's going to take longer to pay off that student debt too because we don't make as much and we don't have as many earning, but as earning potential seems to be a little bit less there too. So what are any good tips that you have on student loan debt? Because you and I were talking before we got on the show and I told you that some of the things that I told my children, which were when they talked about wanting to go to the university and I said, you can do that universities, big universities are big bucks. Local community college are going to be like half the cost. Yeah, you're not going to be a big name. Um, I did go to a fairly large university, but my father also paid for it. And I'm very honest and transparent about it. I didn't pay it. My boyfriend went to the same university I did, and he's still paying at age 45, and a medical professional still paying student loan debts. I mean, it just, it follows us for a very long time. So I'd love to hear any advice you have on managing that. Yeah, um, parents oh, or kids. So, so many thoughts come to mind. I was just in a at a conference where I was with a listen to a panel of 
three of the top student loan lawyers in the country. So these are consumer law attorneys who have specialty practices in student law. And they each asked, what's the most amount of student loan debt you've helped someone with? Each of them have helped. One was a couple, but the other one were two individuals, more than a million dollars in student loan debt. And I've talked to, you know, I've talked to teachers. I remember one couple teaching in Alaska, both teachers, not tenured college professors, teachers, over $250,000 in student loan debt combined. So it's rough. I'm not going to sugarcoat it and say it isn't. But you do have alternatives and you may have options. So two things that I would recommend. First of all, uh, one of the student loan lawyers who I just follow and he's great, Joshua Cohen, he uh, has partnered with this company and they have a, a simple program where it'll take all your federal student loan debts, analyze them and give you a plan and give, tell you your options. You know, could you consolidate? Should you consolidate? What happens if you can, could you go into income-based repayment? It's called studentloanify.com. I don't have any financial interest in that company. I just think it's awesome. They also have, are coming out with a professional version for financial professionals. Okay. So if you are, you know, if you do work in insurance or you work as a financial planner and you want to offer this to your customers so you, they can see how they can get out of debt and then start saving and investing and actually afford the insurance that you're trying to sell them, this is a great program. Free, free. If you then decide you want to go into a repayment plan, like income-based repayment or income contingent payment, and they will help you do the paperwork for 49 bucks. It's not much at all. Yeah. If you want to do it yourself, you can. But I love this as one option. The other thing I would say, and this goes way back. So if you're a parent, and I'm a parent, parent of a college student right now, she's done, she's worked really hard to get good scholarships. But my daughter like me, when she was about seventh or eighth grade, started freaking out about math. And one of my uh, colleague friends, Lynn O'Shaughnessy, she runs um, the college, uh, college, the College Solution is her book, and it's great. And then she has a, a blog as well. And she teaches a class for parents about paying for college. And one of the things that stood out when I interviewed her was she said, if you have a child who's having trouble with math, and conversely, you could do it English, get them help early on because if they don't address it early on, they're going to struggle with it and they're going to continue to fall behind. So when my daughter was in seventh or eighth grade, I got her a math tutor and she stayed with that math tutor all the way to calculus where the math tutor said, I can't help you anymore. And she ended up, um, you know, getting like a three AP score on her calculus test, which is great. You know, it's, it, it's great. Really good. But she was this girl who like me and I made career choices based on this said, I'm not good at math. I can't do math. I don't understand math. She can do math. She just needed the help to do it. So whatever your child, if you have a child who's in the, that age group, the, the middle school age group, and they're struggling with one or the other, get them the help they need. Because a lot of this college uh, scholarships and a lot of the aid that you're going to get is going to be based on test scores. Like it or not, it is going to be based on test scores and you don't want them to fall behind. So that's sort of a way back there tip, but I really want parents to, to look at this early and not wait till junior or senior year, which so many of us do because life happens, right? And then suddenly you're scrambling. You're saying, where are you going to go? What are you going to do? Well, you love that school. So it'll, you'll get a good job. You can pay back that debt. Very, very um, avoidable trap if you start planning very young. Yeah. And that is, I cannot tell you, that's such fantastic advice. I um, have a good friend. His name is Mike Maddock from Maddock Douglas. It's an innovation firm in Chicago. And Mike and I were in his office one day talking about um, strengths, right? And he's a really big believer in the Strengths Finder book and going through the exercise to understand what you're good at and what you're not good at. And uh, to that point, he's like, I wish parents did it with their kids so they could see what their kids are good at and not good at. One of his things was that 
you know, if your child has, you know, passing grades in certain areas, let it be because it's not going to be their, their ultimate, right? So a good example of that is my father who brought my report cards over to me um, one day for my birthday last year and said, I want to read these to you because I'm a professional speaker. And every card said, Cheryl's a fantastic student. She needs to control her talking. Cheryl's a wonderful, they didn't recognize what my strength was. I did detention for a lot of those things. That's why you made me laugh. But going back to that strengths finder idea is there are certain, I think there are certain academic spaces though, that we need to have a very strong fundamental basic grasp of, right? So whether it is our English language, right? We do need to have a full working knowledge of that in order to go out and articulate ourselves well for to work, to have jobs, to do whatever. We just need to do that. But mathematics is another one that I think that you need to have a strong understanding of how math works, how it's relational to other things, right? And that purchasing power, whether it's the grocery store, this, you know, shopping discounts, coupon, whatever that might be, because that's your long-term life understanding of how money works. And I think that that was one of the things that, so for example, I wasn't really big on geometry. I was like, I'm sorry, Mr. Grimes. I really don't care about all of that, you know, but man, I really wish I had spent more time in the algebraic part of the work that I did. I felt like I just skimmed by. I did. I just skimmed by and I was like, it was good enough to, and I was a very good test taker. So I would memorize for a test and then out the way, you know, I can remember all the words of, you know, Billy Joel songs, but I can't remember, you know, the, how to solve for a particular X in a particular area. So I wish I had spent more time there. So I love the fact that you shared that point. Jerry, because well, and, and what based on what you're saying too, this is a life lesson, right? So I used to be terrified of public speaking to the point where in college I broke burst into tears in front of a couple of professors about a group project that I had to get up and present with. I just developed this utter terror about it. And then I went into my job and I had no choice. In fact, I remember the first speaking engagement uh, they assigned me to do was like a, a, a lunch and learn with a group of women. And I don't think I slept for two days. <laughs> I was so terrified. Now I speak in front of large groups in, uh, on podcasts, on radio interviews. I've been on television many, many, many times. And I love it. I, I actually enjoy it. I get a lot of good energy from it. Mm -hmm. So uh, what, what I... So what I try to remember as I'm encouraging other people, and this could be true of your journey to get out of debt. It could be your journey to earning more. It could be journey, your journey to the next step in your career. Sometimes the things that are the hardest are the things we need to do. And even if that doesn't end up being your passion, my daughter's not going to go into a career probably where she's going to need to know calculus, right? But what she does know she does know that she can take something hard that she thinks she can't do and she can find a way to do it. And we all need to think about, you know, what is that that we're not, we're not willing to do? Like for me, the next step, I told a friend, I'm going to take an improv class because I'm humor and improv terrifies me, right? I know my subject matter, but don't ask me to, don't ask me to do something. <laughs> don't ask like me to that. be funny. <laughs> yeah, don't ask me to be funny. And so that's, you know, that's a, a fear for me to try to overcome. So we're getting, a, I'm getting a little off track. Sorry, Cheryl, but I no, love, but it's I the, love the way though. we're talking about what 
what we want to not just accomplish ourselves, but to pass on to our clients, to our family members, and to the people that we care about. You know, it's funny. I was Next question I was going to ask you is about speaking, but one of the best pieces of advice I ever got, um, I was never terrified at the speaking. I was in drama and uh, debate in high school and stuff. I was naturally built to just be up there and I wanted to to share. And, and I am funny. It's one of my highest marks that I get. And it's not for everyone. And I get that. My, di- my difficulty, you talked about learning how to be funny. I have to learn how to be more serious in financial service conferences, you know, and, uh, and it's a struggle on the other side of it too. But one of the best piece of advice I ever got was when you get up there, remember everybody in the crowd always wants you to do well. They've come to hear you. They're already have an encouraging heart and mind that they're like, Oh, she's going to share something. So if you take that and channel and just, and live in that moment that they all want you to do well. It's amazing how that's a, it's actually a, a settles your anxiety a little bit more that you are the subject matter expert of what you know when you're standing there. They are not. And, but everybody wants you to do a good job. And I think I still channel that every day when I get up in front of groups because I'm like, eh. but you equally speak in front of men and women about the topics that you know well. However, do you find that most of the education and advocacy is still you're providing to women? Because I, I've got to believe, I, I know that, so I'm going to relate it to the social media sector of what I'm at. Men will not come up uh, and on LinkedIn and say, I don't know how to do X. They will private message me and say, hey, can you help me with this? They don't want to expose a vulnerability. But with women, they're pretty open to saying, hey, I didn't know about that tool. I'd like to learn. I mean, they, they kind of expose themselves. And uh, I'm just curious if you have found that to be true with, you know, talking about debt and finance and everything else that you're doing. Well, one thing to keep in mind is that there's no real curriculum or course to learn about credit, right? How do you learn about credit and credit reports and credit scores and debt? you research something that's applicable to you. And a lot of us in financial services, this does touch on things that we're doing. So we could be talking to a client, uh, as, as you and I discussed earlier before the show, we could be talking about a, to a client about insurance and discover, hey, they can't afford insurance because they've got this credit card debt that they're trying to grapple with. Or their kid is in credit card debt and they're bailing them out or they're trying to decide if they should bail out their kid. So I find frequently I will get pulled aside, you know, to ask these questions. So first of all, I just want to make it very clear that if you feel like you're not confident about that particular topic, there's a reason for it because we don't really, it's not really taught. It's not taught very much in schools. It's not taught very much in our professional career. And yet it's such an integral part of what so many of us do, or it's so related to what we do in financial services. So that's, so that's the first thing I would say, you know, it's definitely okay. When it comes to men and women, uh, again, as I mentioned earlier, I find that women are just much more willing to raise their hand, to put it out there, to maybe put it out there on social media, to be more transparent about it. Men, they tend to pull me aside. So I, uh, I, I've had, I've been on national you know, television interviews where a producer will pull me aside afterwards and, you know, say, Hey, I got this situation. Can you help me with it? It's much more, it tends to be much more one-on-one. Now, the fun thing is I'm now working in the business credit arena and there we have a, now women are one of the fastest growing segments of new entrepreneurs. So women are starting businesses at a greater rate right now. And so that's terrific. But we do, we do have a lot of men who have had businesses for a long time and they just aren't aware of the whole business credit issue. They don't know that it exists. They don't know what to do next. And I am getting a lot more questions about business credit from men than women. And I don't know if that's just because it's so 
it's such a black box to people that they're just willing to step up and say, Hey, what do I do next? But like when I moderate credit forums, for example, where we answer questions about business credit, I find it's, it seems to be a fairly equal mix of men and women who are willing to ask questions about it. I find one of the interesting employee benefits now that are one of the topics that are coming up often is about financial wellness. Like they're recognizing financial wellness is part of the wellness benefits that they need to be offering their employees. Because, um, so for example, you talked about it earlier in the show about, you know, medical expenses, right? I'm telling, I mean, people can sit there and say, oh, I have great benefits, except that $1,500 deductible you have to meet, which people may not know. And they think that an HSA or an FSA is going to cover that and they may not have, you know, planned accordingly. Um, uh, But I think that it's interesting when I read through the benefits part of financial services that more companies are now stepping up and saying, and having educators like yourself coming in and saying, we're going to have the session on credit debt, student loan debt, how to set budget, whatever it might be, as a way to help their employees breathe, sleep at night, because that stuff really does keep people up at night when they worry. They're going to go in and they're going to bust ass to do a good job, but they come home and they look at their paychecks or they look at their bank balances and they're just barely making it each week. So, I mean... I've got to imagine that the financial wellness part of what you're doing has just, what you're doing has seeped over and into the businesses offering that to employees as well. Yeah, Cheryl. And I remember talking to someone in the, um, in the EAP space, you know, the mm-hmm. space where they provide yeah. employee benefits 20 years ago, trying to convince them that helping their employees with credit debt, it was kind of like, ah, they just didn't get it. Now you yeah. do see it as much, a much more common benefit. And that's, great. And what I would say to someone who has that benefit is don't hesitate to reach out. You are not the only one. I promise you. <laughs> you, you feel like you are. The, the problem, the big problem with debt is it's very isolating. We don't talk about it. It does. And it's, this has been shown in research. Studies. Invisible backpack. It, yes. With Everywhere we're walking, right? Bricks exactly. and rocks. Yes. That's a great analogy. And it leads to poor sleep. It leads to marital fights. It leads to drug and alcohol abuse, or it's associated with it. I can't say causal, but it's associated with all these problems. Mm-hmm. When you're not sleeping, then you're not making good decisions. When you're not making good decisions, then the financial problems get worse. So reaching out for that help, whether it's through an employee assistance plan, whether it's through your financial services professional who can help you, or whether it's through something like a nonprofit credit counseling agency, it's really important to get that help that you need. And I think it's really important for financial service professionals listening to this podcast today to understand and have ready resources, even though it may not be your wheelhouse of things that you know how to do, partner with someone in your community who does. Because when that conversation comes up, think about how how um, how much of a you know a shero for the women you are to be able to say, you know what. I got you. I have somebody who can help you with that, or I can give you a list of resources. Would you say that that's a fair ask? Absolutely. I talk on a regular basis to financial planners, and they're always looking for these kinds of resources. This may not be their target client because they may deal with, for example, a more wealthy, affluent clientele, but their clients' kids are having problems, and their clients' family members are having problems. 
and then they're looking for those resources to be of service. And I do have a deck that I recently prepared for financial planners with resources for these kinds of things. So anyone is welcome to reach out to me. I'll be happy to share that. Love that. Love that. So we've come to the part uh, where I love to ask people uh, questions. But before we do that, um, how do our listeners get in touch with you? What is the best way to contact you to find your resources? So I'm education director at NAV, which is spelled N, a capital N, lowercase A-V, NAV.com. And we help small business owners understand their business and personal credit for free. We're the first site to show them free business and personal credit scores and match them to financing. So you can always check out NAV and you'll see a bunch of my articles there. If you want, if you're interested in my latest book, Finance Your Own Business, you can get a free copy with a free NAV account. The, uh, the link is jerry, G-E-R-R-I dot link slash free book. So jerry.link slash free book. And then you're always welcome to ask me a question. I'm on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm happy to take a question. So um, don't hesitate to reach out if I can help or point you in the right direction or help you point a client in the right direction. I'm happy to do that. And we'll be sure to list all of your contact information on the podcast page so people can uh, have links to that as well. So I have a couple of questions to ask you to get to know Jerry better. She doesn't ever, no one ever knows what I'm going to ask, but I I do make myself answer the same question. So I always, that makes people feel a little bit better. So the first one is, are you more of a spring or autumn person? I love autumn and I miss it. I live in Florida. I've lived here for 20 years and I so, so, so miss the fall leaves. So yeah, yeah. I lived in California for a long time, but I grew up in Missouri and I'm back here to live out. I, I love St. Louis and I am fall all the way. I look forward to my hoodies. I look forward to my pumpkin spice latte. No judgy people on that. I like them. Um, I look forward to the Christmas of the mornings and stuff. Um, the little, I just, I do. I love fall everything about it. Um, so here's a question. What annoys you? What makes you get annoyed? Oh, a lot of politics these days get me annoyed. Um, I would say that's definitely it. Um, I, that's a good question. What gets me annoyed? I don't get too annoyed by traffic or things like that. Um, travel, I get annoyed, but I also appreciate that I get to go to all these places so quickly good heart I don't I'm not no my husband would say she's not that optimistic (laughs) (laughs) so uh, I find that I wrote down were people who take up tons of parking spaces with their cars if your car is so fancy that you need four parking spots don't drive it to the grocery (laughs) store please please that's great that's Um, great or the people who park in handicapped spots but aren't I see them. Yeah. Although, you know, sometimes you just don't know, right? Sometimes but they're supposed you to have like know. the little plate or the little. Oh, yeah, yeah. They don't if you don't have the placard or the plate. Yeah. Yeah. You know what annoys me? Okay. I'll tell you what annoys me more than anything, anything <laughs> now else. Oh, she goes. <laughs> Medical stuff. Like you cannot shop for prices. You don't know what it's going to cost until it's done. And then you get this outrageous bill and your uh, medical stuff and uh, why we can't come up with a better system. That's what annoys me. Uh, oh, I know. Like, and it's interesting. You talked about that real quick. I'm just going to add, you go to, so I get B12 shots every month. And so I do not, I mean, I get how the, the part of it works when you're deductible and yada, yada. So I'm always interested in how that particular shot only costs me $3 and 23 cents a month. Okay. But if I get a prescription for, let's say, naproxen or something like that for pain, you're like, I hurt my back. Why is that 44 bucks? Like, I have yet to ever figure out 
I'm like, mm. and so I know that they, there's a couple of things out there. You talked about politics. I know there's a couple of things out there right now where people are talking about putting the, the costs of medication, like blatantly telling you how much it costs. So I get you on that. I just want to know how much am I getting myself into on this? Because exactly well, you wouldn't take your car in and they'd say, well, you'll find out what it costs when it's done. Uh, it drives me it's like the lottery. It's like yeah. the medical lottery, like, oh, the pharmaceutical <laughs> lottery. It's like, I don't want to play that game. Like, I really don't want to play that game. Um, how about this, Jerry? What's your largest strength? What are you really good at? Uh, well, I think I'm, I think I'm good at uh, really listening and being compassionate uh, for people who are in difficult circumstances. I will talk to a lot of people who are very rushed to a judgment. And I think my, I, I'm always trying to think behind, like, what's behind it? You know, what? You just don't know what people are going through, right? You just don't know. And I'm trying to be more of that where you just, you, ha you may have no idea that person you just talked to, uh, what they're dealing with. So I try to rush, try to step back from being too judgmental. I think I do a fairly good job at it. I think I could be better. Uh, I think that's great. I know that, I know I'm a master connector. I love making sure great people know other great people because I think it makes the world a better place kind of a thing. Um, and like you, I will tell you something that has been a benefit of getting old. And I can say that I'm getting older, I guess, um, is that I have a lot more patience now. And so when someone is frazzled, the very first thing that I say, as soon as I hear the grit in their conversation, I'm like, it's not you, Cheryl. There's something else driving that. Divorce yourself of it. Just empathize with them and nod your head and understand and then let it go. Like not my monkey, not my circus out, you know? So yeah. it's uh, but that has come with age. Yes. And so if young people are listening to this, I tell them all the time and I hope they hear me loud and clear that almost 90% and I make it, I, it's, I pull it out of my own special book of stats. Okay. But a large percentage of people when they're aggravated, it has absolutely nothing to do with you, your situation or whatever you may have caused, whatever. It was just like the tipping point right? It just tipped it over the edge. And so I hear that. And as soon as I do, I think, I know this person knows I'm a good person or they like me. They just, we just, I give them a minute. So I like that you said that. Mm. I, I don't think I'm as good a person as you on that. <laughs> oh, I don't. Yeah. Again, again, I, my we'll husband would say you have your moments. <laughs> we'll have to put it on the show. So is let's not do that. So. This has been a fantastic talk today, and I want to thank you for not only just being on the show, but for working in a field that I feel um, just needs an enormous amount of focus on, and your education, your advocacy, they're imperative to the future financial well-being of so many people. So I'm truly grateful and honored that you took time to talk to me today. Well, and I'm grateful for you. Thank you so much for reaching out, connecting, and for connecting all of these women, great women in, in financial services, because we can make a huge difference in a lot of people's lives. I believe that. Every day I wake up and say, females in finance, like it's my rock on moment. So thank you for listening to today's episode of The F Word. You can learn more about today's guests and the topics we covered in our show notes too. And if you love today's podcast, you know you do, please be sure to subscribe and don't keep it a secret. Share it. Tag hashtag females and finance in your post so we can engage with you as well. And remember the F word. It's where females and finance are not dirty words. Thank you for your time.